Today's scripture is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5a. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm the lead pastor of Zao MKE Church. It's so good to see you all on this uh, very cold morning. I'm glad it's cozy in here. Um, These are the days when I flash back to our Miramar days. Was anyone with us last winter? We toyed with bringing in blankets. A lot of people brought in their their puffy winter coats. Um, How lovely it is to be in a place with heat. (laughs) So as we are gathered here today, we're in the midst of a series on the Lord's Prayer. And we've been going through kind of line by line the ways that Jesus taught us to pray, trying to understand what was so important about speaking in this way, speaking with God in this way. Last week, we talked a lot about the kingdom, your kingdom come. It's a really important part of this prayer. In fact, this is a very efficient prayer. All the lines are packed with meaning. And so last week, we took those three words, your kingdom come, and I talked about them for like a half an hour. I promise I'll try and be faster today. But When we talked about the kingdom and what that meant, part of this is opposition to the kingdoms of this world. Is God saying there is a new and different way, and in order for that new and different way to come, the ways that are must end. The kingdoms of this world must be called out. The rulers of this earth, the ones that are unjust and evil and cruel, the empires of this earth need to fall. And so, when we're talking about this, all of that, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, is really wrapped up in the ways that justice drives us into the streets here at Zao in Milwaukee in 2020. Earlier this week, we, uh, a number of us, a great number of us, a really beautiful, photographable number of us, (laughs) were at a protest. Uh, We were protesting because Trump the head of our current empire, the manifestation, the personal manifestation of American imperialism that is currently exerting its power and violence across the globe was here. And it gave us an opportunity to show that this is not the thing that we mean when we talk about kingdom. That the kingdom of God is different from the kingdoms of this earth. And that empire, as long as it is empire the way that we understand it, with human rulers, held by violence, domination over others, secured by war, fueled by corporate greed and capitalism, 
that so long as those empires are reigning, that the will of God is not being done on this earth, and that God's reign is something altogether different. And so we ought to keep that in mind when we are praying to God in our sanctuaries adorned with American flags, singing God bless America. One of the chants that night that made me full of grief and sorrow, but also of hope and joy, was when a number of us, hundreds of us, started chanting, humanity first, not America first. This is the difference. This is what we mean when we say, your kingdom come, your God, God's kingdom come, and may the kingdoms and rulers and empires of this earth fall away. Because as long as America is first, God's will is last. And so, as we sit in the injustice of this world, as we encounter the kingdoms of earth that are so far from the kingdom of God, as we try and acknowledge the pain of the world as it is, how do we hold on to the hope of the things to come. Well, from that phrase, your kingdom come, packed in with all of those implications of the falling of the empires of injustice, it follows with your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what do we mean with those words? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we've been told a lot of things about the will of God. What are some of the things you've been told are God's will? Feel free to shout them out. Have you ever been told, oh, that's God's will, or that was God's plan for you? God won't give you something you can't handle in the face usually of deep suffering. Illness and suffering are God's will. Death, storms and natural violence that we experience, trauma. What about war? Has anyone ever heard folks justify war saying that it's God's will? We tend to code it a little bit more in the past couple generations by saying that we're here, for instance, to bring democracy. But historically, most wars were waged in the name of God, that it was God's will that we conquer with violence, that it's God's will that you would suffer to learn something. Has anyone ever heard that? We have a pretty messed up cultural understanding of what God's will is. And I'm here to tell you point blank, it is never God's will that God's people, who are all people, would suffer. It is never God's will that God's people would be harmed. And so anytime somebody tells you, oh, it was God's will that that person suffered and died. Oh, it was God's will that that horrible traumatic thing happened to you. Oh, it's God's will that we rain down bullets and missiles on foreign countries. The red flag should pop up for you immediately because it is never God's will to cause harm. Ever. So what is God's will? 
In this scripture, we see the end of things. This is our second week in a row of having apocalyptic literature, which doesn't happen very often at Zao, but I'm super pumped about. (laughs) Apocalyptic literature, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember, is a different genre of writing that we don't really have anymore, but was important during the time of the writings of the Bible. And it was a way of communicating things from a, a space of oppression in kind of a secret code that had embedded in it not only deep critique of power systems, but also tremendous hope of the things to come. And so there's all this fantastic language, often with beasts of many heads and angels that are just these balls of flames and eyeballs and wings, and these wild battles that take place. But embedded in all of that is a critique of the way things are and a promise that things will be different, that there is some sort of battle going on and it is between good and evil in the most epic way. But the premise is that all of the evil and so-called powerful things of this earth, which are violent and frightening, will be defeated by the God who comes, the God who is with us, the God who has never left us. And in Revelation, at the culmination of this wild battle, we see what happens. Can we pull up that scripture again? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. So I want to pause right there. So what does this tell us about the end of things? Once all has been defeated... The first thing God does, the God who is with us, the God who has never left us, the first thing God does is come to us again some more somehow. And this is one of the beautiful aspects of our God who is all things in so many ways, who can be many things paradoxically at once, who can hold tensions that we can only surmise or talk about or have metaphors for. The God who is with us, who never left us, who never abandons us, somehow comes to be with us even more. As, as, as a lover, as a partner, as family. And God comes to be with us, to live with us. And that intimacy with God defines all of creation. That we will be God's people. Now we've always been God's people. So what does it mean when in the end of things... The beauty of it is that we will be God's people. There is something the same there. There is something that is true always. There is something that is here in you now. You are God's people. And there is something not yet realized. That God is coming to be with us in a new way. That we are God's people in a new way. That we will be with God in ways that we cannot fathom now. And so what happens when we are with God in that close of a way? God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. 
And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. If we take this to be any indication of God's will, we cannot abide any interpretation that says God's will is for harm or death or pain. That God's will is that death would be no more. That God would not only take away our suffering, but be intimately involved in it. That image, God wiping the tears from our face. Think of the people in your life that wipe the tears from your face. The people in your life whose tears you wipe away or would wipe away. Think of the moments that you cried, that no one was there to wipe away a tear, and how fundamentally different it would have been if the God of the known universe had been with you in that moment, not only to change the situation, but to touch your face gently, kindly, and with love to wipe away your tears. That is God's will. And when God's will reigns, death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. That is the will of God. And because we cannot even imagine it, we substitute so many lesser things for the will of God. And somehow, God's will always seems to support the status quo and the way things are and the way things must be. But this is a failure of imagination on our part. This is our inability to align ourselves with God's will, which is so radical and so different that it's a little bit beyond our grasp. And so instead of hoping and imagining that this could be true, that the scriptures could be telling us the truth, that death could be no more, that God would be there to wipe away our tears and hold us and love us and live with us and dwell among us, that we could be God's people and God would be our God. Instead of believing in all of that, we use the will of God to justify whatever is around us that we can't imagine our way out of. Cameron and I were at um, an event this weekend, a United Methodist Church event led by queer people, trans people, people of color, who were imagining a different way to do church in the face of a denomination that can't seem to imagine its way out of a paper bag right now. Our denomination keeps trying to recreate itself over and over again in its same image, not in God's image, but in the image it has of itself now, the status quo. And there are all kinds of appeals to the will of God for that, unity primarily. But one of the speakers yesterday, Reverend Tyler Schwaller, was talking about how this failure of imagination is not universal. And that the people who can imagine a better way in an oppressive system are the oppressed. In doing this work, uh, the author of Push Out was encountering a lot of students and administrators, or I'm sorry, administrators, teachers, and parents who felt stuck, saying, well, we have to have our schools be safe, so we need security guards, and we need metal detectors, and we need all of these things. 
we need to be harsh with our students because that's the only way to keep our schools safe. They had an absolute failure of imagination. But the kids have an amazing imagination. The kids who are the ones who are the objects of this violence know immediately different ways of being, different ways of doing, different ways of intervening. When one of the students said, give every kid a journal, I was like, yeah, give every kid a journal. And there were so many ways throughout the, the book, throughout the documentary, and throughout the responses from the students that the imagination of God was there, that the will of God was voiced, that there are ways to be connected, to be intimate, and to be safe, that there are ways to hear the voice of God emerging through God's people. And yet, it is the institutions of power that say, this is the will of God. So what do we do? What do we do to both align ourselves with the will of God when the world would align us with its power and align ourselves with the voice of God when we are experiencing oppression and we would be silenced? Well, Jesus tells us to pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, as we pray, we, we groove things into our being. We align them in our spirit. The things we say over and over again become written on our hearts. And so when we repeat ourselves over and over again, it starts to change us. Now, it changes us best when we are paying attention to it and not merely mumbling the words. But when we are truly praying, which doesn't rely on the right words, the right phrasing, but it, it relies on the right heart, when we are trying to connect ourselves to God and to the will of God, and we say with earnestness, your will be done, we don't even have to say those words. We just have to feel it. Whatever words come out are the right words in that moment. But when we open our hearts to God in prayer, Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words, sighs too deep for words. And the Holy Spirit knows the will of God. The Holy Spirit is implementing the will of God. The Holy Spirit is inviting us into the will of God. And so every time we truly open ourselves to God in prayer of any kind, our prayer, our truest prayer, is your will be done. Because the Spirit prays with us and brings God's will into being. And this prayer is not just your will be done, it is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is heaven? What does it mean to have God's will done in heaven? And why would we want that here? We have a lot of modern Christian notions about heaven. Not a lot of them are particularly biblical. I remember the first time I was like, wait a minute, about heaven. I was in youth group, and uh, one of the prompts for conversation was just like, what do you, what's your version of heaven? And my classmate, Matt, was like, my version of heaven is a nonstop 
pickup basketball game with all my friends where like when we just get so tired, we don't think we can play anymore, my grandma comes out with fresh baked cookies. <laughs> and I was like, all right, Matt, I bet that's not your grandma's version of heaven. <laughs> I mean, it might be, she loved him a lot, but. But we were encouraged to romanticize our own fantasies of, of fun or prosperity or wealth. We've, how many of us have been told about streets paved with gold, and crowns we're supposed to receive? And just to me, that sounds a whole lot like human will, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to have that same radical difference, that same beyond our scope of imagination that the will of God does. It is too good to be true, but not in a fun way in kind of a hollow way, that we can imagine that, and it's the thing we would want on this earth. But what if heaven is something more, something bigger and better, something that is as fun as a never-ending pickup basketball game and love and cookies from grandma, but also something powerful and whole-making, something that makes us feel connected to God, something that makes us somehow more God's people than we ever have been before, dwelling together beyond death, beyond pain, where our tears are wiped away. In Jewish cosmology, there are three realms. There are the heavens, Note heavens, plural. There's the earth, and then there's Sheol. So I'm going to start with Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. It's not hell, and that's a really important distinction. So in in Jesus' day, in the audience that he's talking to, these are the three kind of realms of being, and and they'd be thinking about and talking about Sheol as the place of the dead where everyone goes, the righteous along with um, the bad guys. And everyone would go to Sheol. And in Sheol, there would be a, a death, a permanent death. And in that place of death, you would have a kind of shadow version of yourself. There was actually no, uh, no pain or suffering in Sheol either. But there was no love, no joy, No work, no relationships, no worship, no art, no beauty. And so in this concept, death is not torture. It's not suffering. It's just not being alive anymore. It's a deadening of the self, a lessening. And so there was Sheol. And in the most ancient Jewish cosmologies, this is the place of the dead. And then there's earth. Earth is the place of life. Earth is the place we know. I don't have to go into that too much. But earth is a place of life, but it's fleeting. Earth has this very temporary aspect to it, that we are here for a time and then we pass away, at which point we go to Sheol. And then there's heaven, the heavens, actually. And the heavens were another realm 
It's, it's this beautiful combination of waters and sky. It's the space that we look up into, that where the earth, we're familiar with the earth, Sheol was deep in the, in the recesses of the earth, in the bottom, the lowest part of the earth. But the heavens were above, and they were infinite. That there was kind of a bowl, actually, that held the heavens back. And that that was God's work in creation, that God separated the waters from one another and created the heavens and the earth. And so up in the heavens, that is the realm of God. Heaven wasn't for human beings. This is God's turf. And, and we know that the heavens are eternal. So if the heavens are eternal and Sheol is eternal, but the earth is a place that is fleeting, God's place is in the eternal place, but the place of life, the eternal life of the heavens. God would never go, uh, God's dwelling place would never be the death, the death zone of Sheol. And so, you know, the scriptures tell us things like Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father in the heavens. Came a big distinction among Jewish thinkers at that time. Is this the one life we have and then we die, or is this a prelude to life to come in the heavens? And Jesus falls firmly on the latter side in his teachings. In Matthew, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. And Jesus talks a lot about life and eternal life. We talk about life and eternal life a lot here at Zao in different ways. Zao actually means to be among the living. And while we interpret that in a lot of ways to be about radical living here and now, the difference between being dead inside as we walk through the world and being alive, I think that that has implications for the cosmos and for Jesus' promise that we are invited into life, not into death. And in fact, when Jesus died, when the world, when the peoples of the earth thought, oh, we have one thing on our side that will help us remain status quo. We have one tool left in our belt to stop this incursion of God into the world. We will kill Jesus. But instead, Jesus goes down to the place of the dead and returns because Jesus has defeated death and Jesus rises and is made new in the body that is the same and also somehow unrecognizable. Jesus is with his people in a way that is the same and somehow unrecognizable, a new body, a new promise, a new life. And Jesus has been talking about this his entire ministry, new life, life eternal. This is happening. Come on. And nobody around him gets it. And we wrestle with those same texts trying to understand. But what if the death that is status quo, the death that is the ways and kingdoms of this earth, were truly defeated in that moment? And what if God is inviting us to do that along with God? You see, this text also says something really interesting in Revelation. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this actually doesn't come up just in Revelation. It's not just um, in that apocalyptic literature. It's also in 2 Peter. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens 
and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. John Dominic Crossan calls this collaborative eschatology. I will break that down, I promise. Eschatology is the conversation we have about how things will end, what happens in the end of all things. This is where some people run off in the direction of like rapture or heaven and hell in the kind of traditional ways, uh, traditional cultural contemporary ways. But with this idea of collaborative eschatology, it's buying fully into the promise that God is making all things right and that God is making all things new. But the collaborative part is that God is choosing to make all things new, which has already happened. The victory has already been won. Jesus has already raised from the dead, has already defeated death. But while that's already happened, God is also doing it in and through us. That we are called into the resurrection which began with Jesus. That we are called to work with Jesus in renewing the earth and the heavens for a final resurrection, a final sense of new life. That this new life is something that God has simultaneously done for us and given to us and also invited us into to do with God, to build with God. And in Revelation, there is this new city. That new city is a city that already existed on earth, Jerusalem. It's a new Jerusalem. And it invites the imagination to say, what would a new Jerusalem look like? in the kingdom of heaven? What would a new life look like? How, if we can imagine that God could one day make all things new, sort of etch-a-sketch style, death is defeated, tears wiped away, check, check, check. What if we're called to be part of that, be part of making that happen? That all things are being made new, not that we're going to be lifted up and gone to heaven because heaven is this static place, Heaven is the place and household of God. But what if God's intention in bringing God's self to us, as we see in this text, is not that we're getting zapped up to heaven, but God is serious about coming down to us. And that in order that that would happen, we need not just a new earth, but a new heaven. We need God's household to be rebuilt with us in mind. And that God wants us to help build it. God is promising us a new way, a new heaven and a new earth. God is showing us God's will, resurrection, new life, new imagination. And God is asking us to be a part of it. And so when we pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, We are not only praying, God, we see that you got it on lock in heaven. Can you make that happen on earth? We're saying, may your will be done on earth as it's done also in heaven. While you are making a new heaven and a new earth and we are doing it with you. God, may your will be done and your will is an invitation to us to participate. God, may we partner with you in building this new heaven and new earth. God, may the earth and the heavens become one. Be made new as you dwell with us and we with you. May we find new life. May you wipe away the tears from our eyes as we wipe away the tears from one another, united in love 
What if this is the heaven that we are promised, that comes with it a new earth that we are called to build now until the end of time? God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? God of all things, God of new life, stretch our imaginations to see the life that you have in store for us, now in this moment and forever. God, give us the hope to believe that your kingdom is now, that your heavens are here. Give us hope to trust that your kingdom is eternal and that your heavens are everlasting. God, give us the softness and compassion to allow our tears to be wiped away and to wipe away the tears of others as we do your will now and in the days to come. Amen.